Let us pray. O God, take these words of mine and speak through them. Take our lives and live through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. In your name we pray. Amen. Love your enemies. We might as well just go there. <laughs> of all the challenging and baffling things that Jesus ever said, this statement has got to be right at the top of the list. And in fact, it's actually a paradox, a contradiction in terms, because the Greek root of the word enemy is the person you hate. So the statement is saying, love the person you hate, which sounds impossible. How can you love the very person that you can't stand? Now, scholars debate quite a bit over which of the words attributed to Jesus in the Bible he actually said. But most scholars agree that he really did say, love your enemies. And the reason they think that is because it's so difficult and so outrageous and so impossible that if Jesus had not said it, no one would have thought to put it into the text. In other words, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> Love your enemies, says Jesus. Ethicists say that this statement sums up the distinguishing feature of Christian ethics that makes Christian ethics different from any other ethical system, either of Jesus's day or of ours. As Jesus says when he presents this command in Matthew's gospel, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies. That makes, all of that makes total sense. If someone takes one of your eyes, you take one of theirs. And the same with the tooth. Love the people that love you, hate the people that hate you. Logical, sensible way to live. But Jesus turns it all upside down. You have heard it said, but I say to you, love your enemies. And then he lays out exactly what it means to love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Some of that might sound a little abstract enough to be just barely doable, but what about the next command? If someone strikes you on one cheek, offer the other one. If someone takes your coat, offer them your shirt. In fact, if anyone takes anything from you, don't ask for it back. Don't ever expect to see it again. There's something almost offensive about these commands. And I think it's important to acknowledge the danger of these demands and the ways in which they can be and have been misused. I don't think Jesus can possibly asking, be asking that people submit to abusive relationships, that it's okay for children to be bullied, for spouses to be beaten, that there's any kind of virtue in putting up with that kind of brutality. I don't think that is what Jesus is asking of us. 
It's important to notice that right before this passage, Jesus says to his followers that they are blessed when people hate you, exclude you, and revile you, and defame you on account of me, on account of him. So the commands to pray and bless and do good to those who hate and revile and exclude us are a response to persecution that happens because of faith in Christ. In other words, loving one's enemies is not just mere passive submission to violence and abuse, but is rooted in one's Christian faith. It's part of one's Christian witness. And that, I think, ought to be a litmus test for what it means to say that we love our enemies. We recognize, when we recognize that loving our enemies is part of our Christian witness, then it begins to become possible to grasp how to fulfill a command which otherwise would be impossible. We can love our enemies not because it's something that human beings naturally know how to do, but because we are imitating God's love and being empowered by it to do something that otherwise would be so far beyond our capacity. Be merciful just as your Father in heaven is merciful, says Jesus. This standard goes well beyond the golden rule, even though Jesus quotes the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The golden rule measures how we treat others by how we want them to treat us. But what Jesus is saying is that that shouldn't be the standard. It shouldn't be what we want others to do to us or how we want them to treat us, but what God wants us to do and how God wants us to treat other people. The standard for loving others is given to us by the speaker himself, by Jesus himself. For he went to the cross where he was abused and reviled and cursed, and where he offered his face to be slapped and his clothes to be stripped from him. And in the midst of all of that cruelty, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. With hatred raining down upon him, he responded with love toward his enemies. He loved his enemies, and in doing so, he showed forth the infinitely merciful and loving heart of God. And that is not only the standard for us to imitate, but the power that allows us to do it. It's because of Christ, and it's in his power alone, that we're able to love our enemies. And when we do this, we discover that love of enemies is far from passive or submissive. Love in this way is not an emotion or a feeling, but it is a fundamental disposition and a set of actions to pray, to bless, to do good, to give away our possessions, to actively will the good of the other person who's doing us harm. And in those actions, there's power. More power, in fact, than there is in hatred. The African-American mystic and theologian Howard Thurman wrote beautifully about this in his classic work, Jesus and the Disinherited which is a meditation on the question of who is Jesus for those with their backs against the wall. And Thurman points out that hatred, the perfectly justified hatred of the oppressed toward the oppressor, actually does more damage to the one that hates than to the person who is hated. 
And he says hatred corrodes the soul. It destroys our sense of morality. It takes up our energy. It dries up our creativity. And it steals our joy. That's what hatred does to us when we hate. But love, on the other hand, love of enemies, is active and powerful. And he says to turn the other cheek is actually provocative. It exposes the violence of the other person and forces them to confront it. That was the wisdom behind the Gandhian movement for independence in India, which Thurman studied, and the civil rights movement in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, which Thurman inspired, which was to confront injustice and to elicit the violence that was inherent in these systems of oppression was the goal of the movement, to expose it. And by exposing it, and by enduring that violence in their own persons, they compelled a moral reckoning with the systems that sustained that violence. So there was astonishing power in this provocative love of the enemy. Now, the essence of love of enemies, as Thurman says, is simply, although it's not simple, but simply to see the humanity of this other person, even the one who's doing you harm. It is to see the other as God sees them. As it says in Psalm 139, Lord, you have tested me, you know me, you know my rising up, you know my sitting down, you know everything about me. That is how God knows us. And to love the enemy is to see them as Christ sees them, as Christ saw them on Calvary and said, Father, forgive. As Thurman says, it's to meet the person where they are and then to treat them as though they were where they ought to be. To love an enemy is to meet them where they are and then treat them as if they were where they ought to be. It is to call forth from them their transformation from enemy into friend. And when we're looking at this other who is an enemy, it's also helpful to remember that everyone we meet is fighting a great battle, and we don't know the burdens they are carrying. To love the enemy is to call forth from them their morality and to turn them from enemy into friend. But this requires our own transformation more and more into the image of Christ, which is a painstaking discipline. And it's a gesture of inner authority and power that is ours no matter where we stand, even when our backs are up against the wall. We have the power to love. Now there's a tremendous amount of hatred and resentment abroad in our nation at this time and in our world. And we seem to be teetering on the edge of violence quite a bit of the time. And underneath that is this chronic inability to see each other as human. Now, we Christians can fall right into those patterns. It makes perfect sense to love our friends and hate our enemies and to demand an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We can indulge our hatreds, even if they weaken and destroy us, from the inside out. Or, or we can choose the narrow way that Jesus lays out for us, the way the world does not choose, the difficult and illogical and beautiful and transforming 
way of love. It doesn't matter what our circumstances are. It doesn't matter what has happened to us. No matter what happens, we don't have to get stuck in our hatred because we can always unleash the power of love. Or rather, as children of the Most High, we can allow divine love to flow through us and to do more in us than we can ever ask or imagine. Lucretia Mott was a 19th century Quaker abolitionist. She was a tiny woman who nevertheless Going up against the mores of the time that said women shouldn't speak in public, she nevertheless went and gave public addresses condemning the evil of slavery. One day she was giving a speech before a hostile crowd. And as she spoke, they became increasingly angry and threatening. And at any moment, it seemed like violence was going to break out and that they would storm the stage and attack her and her few companions. At the end of her speech, the mob seethed toward her blocking her exit from the building. And there was no way out except through the crowd that looked like they were about to attack her. And one of her companions, in fear, asked her, how are you going to get out? And Lucretia Mott walked up to the mob and up to the angriest and most threatening man in it, and she reached out and she placed her hand, her arm in his, and she said, this gentleman will escort me out. And he did. As we gather here 